Coming up, it's the final countdown. As we enter the last week of the campaign, can anything halt the seemingly inevitable result? Plus, why politicians are exploiting tragedy for political gain. And Michael Gove, rap superstar. Hello, Paul Osborne here. Thank you for downloading this latest podcast. You know, politicians love a grid. Whether in office or in opposition, they love to plan announcements, interviews, photo opportunities. Elections are a boom time for anybody who is good with a spreadsheet. But then events come along and throw those plans up in the air. And so it was last Friday when a convicted terrorist released from prison a year ago murdered two people in London before being killed by armed police. In the past, politicians often tried to rise above point scoring at a time like this. They would unite in condemnation and expressions of sympathy. They would pause for a respectable amount of time and then they would resume their campaigns. But this doesn't happen anymore. While Boris Johnson, Jeremy Corbyn and Sadiq Khan did stand together at a vigil for the victims of the London Bridge attack earlier this week, it came after days of bitter argument over who was to blame for Usman Khan's early release. It is on such things that elections can turn. And while the polls suggest there is still a wide gap between the Conservatives and the Labour Party, it hasn't stopped both sides taking contrary positions that risk alienating some voters and, in the case of Boris Johnson, have outraged a grieving father. Well, let's at this stage bring in Robert Meakin. Robert, obviously there is a a, a horrible parallel here in that in the run-up to the 2017 election, we had a terrorist attack at London Bridge as well. And we saw, both in that attack and the response to the Manchester Arena bombing, which also happened during that campaign, that that old consensus that you don't politicise tragedy doesn't apply anymore. Now, clearly Boris Johnson saw it too, and saw Theresa May get attacked for cuts to the police and cuts to the security services, and decided to go on the attack himself so he blamed labor said look it's labor legislation is the reason that this man was released now usman khan was convicted two years into david cameron's premiership and when theresa may was home secretary he was freed when theresa may was prime minister so it's a bit of a stretch to say that a party that's been in government for nearly 10 years, bears absolutely no responsibility for the early release of a terrorist prisoner who was sent to prison under that government. Sadly, a a predictably grisly state of affairs, seeing the Prime Minister so quick to try and chuck blame in the direction of Labour Party. Such stuff was hardly on most people's minds at the time as they tried to get their heads round this this appalling tragedy, but but for the politicians, it was just all part of this endless and increasingly poisonous turf war and and blame game that we're sadly all too familiar with. I I think if we step back from it for a moment, I doubt either the Conservative administration or Labour administration of recent years could could say that they'd have been the ones to prevent this happening. And yet you have this, this awfully cynical politicking going on, something that, of course, inevitably deeply upset the family of one of the victims. Well, indeed, Jack Merritt's father very specifically asked politicians not to do this. And you have to say that the people around Boris Johnson decided to ignore that. Now, this was described in one of the TV debates a few days ago as crass by Nicola Sturgeon. It's very hard 
to disagree with that. And you see Jack Merrick's father again speaking out an article he wrote for The Guardian, and he said that his son would be seething at his death and his life being used to perpetuate an agenda of hate that he gave his everything fighting against. Now, it's not just the fact that everything we know about that particular victim of this attack suggests that he would not have agreed with what Boris Johnson is saying. It's that the Conservative Party has decided that it is okay to use this tragedy to attack their opponents, to stoke fear to a certain extent, to say the only safe outcome for you and your family is a Conservative government. Anything else puts you in danger. And I think we can get a handle on where Tory HQ are coming from with this, however grim it was as a strategy. I think they watched Theresa May struggle in the public spotlight following, you know, much publicised tragedies uh, during the time, during her time in 2017. And they were determined to hold on to the momentum and not be seen as being removed from it or at all to blame. And hence we see this, as I say, this extremely cynical, hurtful strategy that they've employed in recent days. It's just, I'm afraid there are, it's no holes barred anymore. And this very, very sadly is the modern political era we live in. Boris Johnson wrote an article for the Mail on Sunday, uh, which was headlined, Give me a majority and I'll keep you safe from terror. That's a very dangerous promise for someone to make when they're seeking election for a five-year term, because you can't possibly guarantee to keep that promise. The idea that you can say, I will keep you safe, nothing will happen on my watch, is ridiculous. I spoke to one academic a couple of days ago who said... The stuff he is suggesting, whole life sentences, no early release, you stay in forever, all of this stuff, it might make you feel better in the short term, he said, but it doesn't make you safer. He said, look at Guantanamo locking people up and and throwing away the key actually just radicalised and recruited a new generation of extremists. So arguably, in pursuit of a few days' good headlines... You've made a rash promise that theoretically the policies you are advocating make even harder to fulfil. And it's illustrative of, of again, the the Boris Johnson approach, really. He's hardly the only politician presently guilty of such an offence, but saying anything, anytime, anywhere, just to catch the wave at that moment, just to seize a short-term advantage. Of course, we damn well know Boris Johnson can't keep your eyes safe from terrorist threats or most of the the British population. That's an unfortunate reality of modern life that we we live in day in, day out. So it's just the fact that the Prime Minister thinks we're stupid enough uh, to be be reassured uh, but by such words, you know, it proves really. So that's, it makes me wonder just what low esteem, you know, Tory HQ sometimes hold the general public in that they believe actually voters will believe this claptrap. Should another terrorist attack occur at some point, no one will ever remember this assurance from the Prime Minister, and he damn well knows it. They're just empty words during a deeply cynical general election campaign. I mean, it has thrown into sharp relief, I think, exactly what kind of election campaign this is. Been. You've had ministers, I think the Justice Secretary was asked on the radio a few days ago, aren't you ashamed of exploiting murder victims for political advantage? A former Tory MP, Philip Lee, who's, who's standing for the Liberal Democrats this time, said that his former party was using the Donald Trump playbook. People around me were horrified by this. People around me were appalled to see the Prime Minister and, uh, and his supporters jumping on this tragedy for political gain. And I wasn't all that surprised because I just thought, well, 
yeah, this is exactly what I would expect modern politicians to do. I'm afraid so. I certainly wasn't surprised. I don't take any pleasure in saying that at all. But it is the era we now live in. And I said the gloves are off and they will resort to just about anything presently, even when it comes to, for very short-term gains, cynically using as big a tragedy as this. Incidentally, Boris Johnson, when he was interviewed at the weekend by Andrew Marr, was asked questions about the timing of Usman Khan's release, the fact that it all happened under Conservative governments. And he seemed at pains to say, well, I, you know, I have only been in office for 100 and so many days. He seemed that he was only willing to defend his personal four-month record as Prime Minister, that the events of Conservative and Conservative-led governments dating back to 2010 were not his responsibility. He is not accountable for them. He should not be held accountable in this election campaign for things that this government or the, Theresa May's government were doing six months ago, that he should not be held accountable for them, which is an odd position for the leader of a political party, particularly one who is seeking to hold to account a party that hasn't been in government for nearly 10 years. Yes, and it is coming from a man who also was a foreign secretary not that long ago. That is an understandable strategy, to be fair, because he wants as much distance with Theresa May, that disastrous general election campaigner, as possible. He's a very different political beast. And to be fair, a great deal has happened inside the Conservative Party, <laughs> not all for the good, many would argue, since Boris became leader. So I, th- I think I think you give him a pass there myself. I think he, he's, he's got enough excuse, enough room to manoeuvre to say, no, this is a new face. This is a new government, because look at the turnaround there has been. He's trying to say this is we're turning over a new page. This is a brand new administration, a brand new prime minister. And it would be odd if he didn't uh, adopt that strategy. So there's about a week left in the campaign and while no doubt the Conservative Party's poll lead is slipping, it's only slipping by a very, very small amount. Uh, There is still overall around a 10-point lead for the Conservatives as we go into these final stages. So yes, Labour is closing the gap, but at a snail's pace, uh, they would need the election to run until about March to, to catch up at this rate. But... Unexpected events could still have a big impact. We were talking there about the London Bridge attack. And there are, it strikes me, Robert, three more things that could still have an impact on this election. One of them is Donald Trump. This, I think, is the one that has kept the Conservative uh, campaigners awake at night. Nobody escapes close contact with Donald Trump unscathed. Nobody. And we know that Boris Johnson is desperate to avoid any kind of of direct endorsement. Now, normally asking Donald Trump, if he wouldn't mind keeping his opinions to himself, is a a path doomed to failure, though so far, at the time of recording, he is being a very good boy, isn't he? Donald's being a very good boy. So far, he has said, what, me? Interfere in another election? Me? No, 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 no. I'll happily work with any Anybody who's elected as prime minister, anybody, why would I interfere? You must be thinking of a different Donald Trump who said that I really didn't like Jeremy Corbyn and I wouldn't share intelligence with him. No, that wasn't me. Me? Want to buy the NHS? I haven't even heard of the NHS. What is the NHS? The NHS? I've never heard of it. I don't know where this rumour came from. It was a different Donald Trump that said the NHS would definitely be on the table 
in any trade negotiations. He is trying his hardest to behave at the moment. And of course, when it comes to things like his, his, his commitments on the NHS, we talk about Boris before and his pronouncements. We know, again, Donald Trump is the master of this to say, say one thing and it, 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 it's, it's rendered meaningless within days, weeks or months. So we take that obviously with a shed full of salt. And Trump, I suppose, also realises that you know, if he does open his mouth in any particularly provocative way, it potentially helps Jeremy Corbyn. And though he pretends he doesn't know who Jeremy Corbyn is, it would be unhelpful to him to have a, a Jeremy Corbyn-led administration. Uh, it, obviously, it, it's far more helpful to President Trump, I imagine, if we have Prime Minister Johnson later again this month. So, I, I th- yeah, it's just, it, to be fair, he, he, he's shown... Um, Admirable restraint by his standards, to be honest. But whether he can really keep that up, I'm uh, not entirely convinced. We, we should remember this is this is the man who, when he last landed in the UK, sat on the tarmac long enough to compose a rude tweet criticising the mayor of the city he had just landed in. Another possible uh, factor that could change things in the final few days is the last of the TV debates. Now, yes, there have been far too many TV debates, and some have been spectacularly tedious affairs. But this last one is another head-to-head between Boris Johnson and Jeremy Corbyn. It will be on primetime BBC One on Friday night. And, you know, a bit like the first one, the ITV one at the start of the campaign, but perhaps intensified, Jeremy Corbyn's got nothing to lose at this point. Right now, Labour are going to lose this election. So you might as well throw everything you've got at this debate and and try and land a blow, try and score a point. And right now... Boris Johnson's determination is to say nothing at all that might cost him votes. It could, I'm not saying it will, it could be a significant factor. Yeah, I I was just thinking of, you know, just reminded me of Boris during the Tory leadership campaign when he was ahead. I mean, seriously ahead, of course, in that more so than he is in this general election. And he did adopt a similar strategy, really, wasn't it? It It was say as little as possible, just don't mess up. Obviously, they're wrapped, they're you know, dressing him up in armour at the moment and trying just to do a damage limitation exercise because they sense their man is ahead. It is just worth saying, though, that this is the man who's saying in newspaper articles, I can keep you safe from terrorism. And he's scared of Andrew Neil. I know we said this during the Tory leadership campaign, but it bears repeating. You're a chicken, Boris. You're a big, big chicken. Go on, chicken, Boris. If you're so clever and erudite and intelligent... Do the interview. Should be able to wipe the floor with him. You well know that this is a a, a, a tried and tested strategy. Only only look back to Tony Blair, and it's a it's a cynical rule of front runner politics. Why risk it? Blair would Blair wouldn't dare debate John Major for goodness sake on, on on television because he knew he was far ahead and it didn't think it was worth the risk of a slip up. And it's it, it's just it's a modern day version of that. And people can scream, obviously, and uh, the, the, the broadcasters get very upset because it, it ruins their programmes. The prime minister doesn't play ball. The truth is he doesn't have to play ball. It's not legal for him to turn up. If people are that offended, don't vote for him. But he knows, as Tony Blair did before, right now he's ahead. Why the hell risk it? I do wonder if that actually is the way around this, because in the United States, control of TV debates is out of the hands of the politicians and the TV networks. There's a separate independent commission that sets them up, has three debates, and just says to all the TV channels, look, if you want to show it, you can show it. If you don't want to show it, don't show it. These are the three debates. Instead of this idiocy, where the BBC want a load of debates, ITV wants some, Sky wants some, Channel 4 wants some, let's just have three. 
And then let's make it a condition of election campaigns that you have to take part in them. And there'll be three, and maybe they'll end up being on two or three channels at once. But that way, we don't have to sit through 12 of the damn things. Oh, absolutely. I think if it's enshrined in law, you put it put it through Parliament. Make I, I completely agree. I don't care if it's, you know, they'd give all the channels the option of broadcasting all three of them. Because at the end of the day, there's the, there's the egos of the various media executives wanting their show to be the biggest and the best. This is all lost on most of the general public. They just want, they want to get a sense of the people obviously standing for election. They want to hear what they've got to say. They're not interested in all the various squabbles between BBC, ITV, Sky, Channel 4, Channel 4 angrily putting up melting ice cubes to represent the fact Boris Johnson isn't there. Most people do not give a jot. But as you say, we could get rid of all this nonsense if you said, right, by law, you appear, three debates, one at the start, one in the middle, one on the eve of polling, that's your lot. And I think, yeah, that's the way forward. The third potentially significant factor is is the possibility of a full-on collapse of support for the Liberal Democrats, to the point that we're now seeing reports that even Joe Swinson's own seat might be at risk in this election. The Tories are definitely banked on a resurgent Lib Dem vote, which would split the anti-Tory vote that coalesced behind Labour last time. Well, now we're in a world where the Liberal Democrats will be satisfied with three, maybe four gains overall. And there was a YouGov study a while ago, a few days ago, that said about 40% of Remain voters are backing Labour in this election, which is up about 12 points from when the election was called, compared to about 20% of Lib Dems, which is down about seven or eight points from when the election is called. Now, look, the Tories have cleaned up the the pro-Brexit vote. You know, they've eliminated more or less the Brexit party. And if you're a Leave voter, you're probably on board with the Tories now. But you would, if you were Labour, you would look at that, 20% of Remain voters still thinking about backing the Lib Dems, and you would think, that is a big chunk of votes for us to still go after in this last week of the campaign. They've been well and truly squeezed, and it, obviously it's a scenario for the Liberal Democrats we've seen many times before. As the elections progress, the, the narrative seems to be more and more, yeah, essentially, can Boris get that majority to govern without having to rely on anyone else? Or does Corbyn still have a chance of somehow being propped up by some sort of minority government arrangement? That seems that, that seems to the choice that the country has. And the Liberal Democrats, amid that, very much struggle to have a voice. I mean, remember all the excitement just, you know, a couple of months ago, how uh, positive the Lib Dems seem to be performing in the polls. Yet again, it seems to be the case that when it comes close, when it gets to the crunch, when it comes to the big one, i.e. a general election, people think, I quite like the Liberal Democrats. Can I really trust them, A, to be an, an authoritative governing party? B, do they have a realistic chance of winning? Can I really, is it really worth me giving their vote? C, are they going to cause a hung parliament that a lot of people don't particularly want? So all these factors play against them and the Liberal Democrats are struggling not to drown as a result. I do think a mistake the party's made is to build a sort of quasi-presidential campaign around Jo Swinson, who is somebody who the vast majority of voters do not know. She's only just been elected as the party leader. All right, she was a junior minister in the coalition. People do not remember that until her opponents point it out and then it becomes a negative for her. You know, I think this was a campaign when they should have been introducing her to the country rather than plastering her face on buses as the potential next prime minister. Look, I say those factors could start to change the maths as we move towards polling day, but... The most likely outcome is still a Conservative victory, though, let's be honest, it wouldn't be the first surprise. Though, 
I do wonder at this stage in the campaign why Labour isn't making more progress because we've had polls that have shown that voters actually quite like some of Labour's flagship policies, you know, renationalising the railways, getting rid of tuition fees, even the free broadband, which struck me as a bonkers idea, has gone down quite well, yet the Tories are 10 points ahead. I think in part the Tories have got a very simple message that the whole get Brexit done thing may not be true, but it appeals to a nation that is frankly weary uh, of, of all of this. Even if they like some of those policies in the Labour manifesto, I think some people wonder if that much spending is genuinely viable. But I think the main reason is that we had a radical Labour manifesto two years ago and it was new and it was a revelation. And Jeremy Corbyn was a revelation two years ago to people who don't closely follow politics. But while this manifesto, yes, is more radical than the last one, those two big factors that drove support to Labour last time, the radical platform and Jeremy Corbyn performing better than they'd expected, neither of those things are new this time. And you, and you can see they're sort of relying on the same playbook and it's not quite working. The glass half full feeling this time round, if you're a Labour supporter was that they, they'd come from a position of strength that Jeremy Corbyn would outperform himself from last time around. Right now, it seems to say there's a familiarity with what uh, Corbyn can offer and it isn't giving him that bounce. If anything, it, thinks he's gonna, it feels like he could, he's in danger of falling short of where he got last time. Not only aren't people talking about him getting majority, they aren't really talking about him, I say, even being in a position to form a government unless there's a real surge in support momentum for him in these in these in these coming days it doesn't seem to have happened right now but we may well be surprised maybe with the liberal democrats being squeezed more and more maybe we're going to see labor come to the fore a lot more their traditional support will get behind them more they will hope that talk of you know brexit supporting labor voters being you know, disillusioned with them that when it comes to the crunch they may still come back on side so they feel there's still plenty to play for right now it it, it looks worrying for them I mean, look, I like elections. I like elections a lot. I like elections more than a normal person probably should. But even I have to admit that so far, this one's been a bit rubbish, hasn't it? Uh, Apart from the fact that it's come at the worst possible time of the year when we're all far too busy thinking about other things, the campaign has just been angry, but without any real clarity. It's as if the fury that exists online all the time has been brought to life and and put into people, political leaders who are meant to be trying to bring us together, have sounded like outraged Twitter users. And while the Tories, Robert, have justifiably faced criticism for things like the fake fact-checking Twitter feed, the fake videos, you know, Chicken Boris being too chicken to face Andrew Neil, all of that kind of stuff, no one's blameless in this. Yeah, you know, get Brexit done is a meaningless phrase. It's not true. Brexit won't be done at the end of January. But there we are. It's a political catchphrase. But you know what? Similarly, when Labour say the Tories are going to sell the NHS, well, no, they're not. They're not going to sell the NHS. They're possibly, quite quite possibly, going to involve the private sector more than it is at the moment. But you know who started large-scale private sector involvement in the NHS? It was the Labour Party. It was the Labour Party that brought in the private sector to cut waiting lists for operations. It was the Labour Party that brought in private finance initiatives deals. The Liberal Democrats suspended someone a few days ago for apparently creating a fake email to fend off inquiries 
from journalists. It's just been a crap election. I'm afraid so. And I think if we we look at the, uh, the, the backdrop to this as well, before this general election, what, what were we being subjected to as a general public? We were being subjected to the... You know, the, the cynical, insufferable, self-indulgent goings on in the Houses of Parliament during a Brexit debate, where often Brexit seemed to play second fiddle to short-term party political gain and the inevitable petty skullduggery that sort of went on at the time. So people have had their fill of a lot of these characters who are now again on our screens trying, trying to get our vote. So we did, it didn't start off with a great deal of generosity in the hearts of voters. Then, as you say, we've got dubious, dare I say, fraudulent slogans at the front of both campaigns. The Tories, vote for us, we'll get Brexit done. Rubbish, you won't. Labour, v- vote for us or the NHS will be sold to America. Rubbish, it won't be. And that's, this is what we've been reduced to. And I think most of the public are wise to this feeling pretty jaded and at times, you know, pretty angry that such is the, the substandard level of debate we're being offered. It doesn't mean, though, that we haven't had some golden moments, brief golden moments, perhaps, in this campaign. There was Teagate when Boris Johnson showed the world that he hasn't got the first idea how to make a cup of tea. Then Boris Johnson's dad went on television and basically said that we're all thick because we can't spell Pinocchio. Tell you what, I can spell Stanley, I can spell patronising, elitist, popinjay. I can spell those. Look those up, Stanley, in one of your big books. Then there was Labour's big plan to plant two billion trees over the next 20 years, which sounds amazing, until you realise they'll have to plant 200 trees a minute, every minute, every hour of every day for 20 years. But perhaps the shining idiocy of the election was when Michael Gove took on Stormzy. Now, look, Stormzy, who is not being mentioned for the first time in this podcast, by the way, because we're so on trend, is a Labour supporter. He has called Boris Johnson a sinister man with a long record of lying, which prompted Michael Gove to say that Stormzy was a better rapper than he is political analyst, which prompted Labour's Angela Rayner to say that Michael Gove's crap at both, to which Gove replied, and I'm going to read this out as best I can. I set trends, dem man copy. Now, astute observers will know that this is a lyric from Stormzy's hit Shut Up. And I am as comfortable reading that out as Michael Gove should have been writing it down. What on earth possessed him? Surely there would have been someone close to him saying, do you know what? I just might leave that one. I, I don't I, I can't see how this plays to your advantage in any way whatsoever. Actually, it, it, it could actually turn out quite bad for you. So, so just leave it alone. But, but who knows? Maybe no one was there. Maybe it was an impulse on his part. Maybe he boasts a great knowledge of the, the rap music genre. My, my sense is probably not. While we ponder the idea of Michael Gove in a rap battle something I'm sure we'd all enjoy seeing. I think we'll leave it there for now. Uh, don't forget there's more on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at Party Games Pod and at PartyGamesPodcast.com. You can catch up with a full archive if you can bear to live through the last few weeks again. Thanks to Robert. Thanks to you for listening. Till next time, goodbye. Goodbye.